No kids. Okay. Please turn with me in your Bible to John 15. We are continuing from where we were last week, and we'll be beginning in verse 9 in just a minute. John 15. Whenever my siblings get together, there's a story that inevitably gets told about our middle brother, Jim. There are five of us, and so when we get together, we all like to talk, and there are no shortage of memories to share. This all happened before I was born, the story I'm going to tell you, but it's been told so many times I feel as though I were there. In 1962, the family took a trip to Disneyland. My brother Jim was eight. Back then, it would have cost 60 cents for a kid his age to get in and another $3 for the ticket book. That has nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was interesting. (laughs) They hadn't been there very long when all of a sudden, they couldn't find Jim. They had all been walking together, but unbeknownst to them, he had gone into a phone booth to see if there was any money in the coin return. My parents, of course, panicked because missing a child is a scary thing. And they kind of stood around there waiting, not knowing exactly what to do. And finally, one of them talked to a security guard who told them that they would be on the lookout. Sometime later, he found Jim. After my brother had snuck back into the park. Why did he need to crawl under the fence to get back in? Because he had left Disneyland to go to the car. When he came out of the phone booth, he couldn't find anyone. So he went up to the parking lot to see if they were there. And when they weren't there, he decided that he would just relax for a few minutes in the car because, of course, it was 1962 and nobody locked anything. After a while, he came back in. Everyone's kind of fuzzy about the time frame, and he found them. Now, I was thinking about this story this week because not too many kids leave Disneyland on their own choice. But the more curious thing that I was thinking is, is that it didn't occur to my parents to tell their kids not to leave the happiest place on earth. Why would they? Usually, no one has to tell us to leave a good place. No one thinks to remind us, hey, make sure you stay for your whole vacation. Make sure you don't leave when your favorite team is winning their game. All of us have places that we love, places that we don't want to leave. We want to stay a long time there, places where we don't need to be told not to leave. In the passage that we read today, Jesus says the obvious to his disciples in a way that should make us pause and think. He tells them to remain in his love. Now, in this life, there are plenty of warnings for us to stay away from danger. There are times we need to tell people, you know, that's a toxic relationship. You should leave it. You're in a harmful situation. You shouldn't stay there. But normally, we don't need to tell people not to leave when they're in a loving context. So what is it about us that needs to be reminded to stay in our relationship with God? Whose care for us is so complete and life-giving. Why do we need to be told, exhorted even, in these last words of Jesus to remain in his love? Isn't that what we actually long for in our lives? 
to be connected with our creator who delights in us simply because we are his? Maybe Jesus needed to remind them because Judas had already left the circle. Maybe because in a few hours he knew the others would scatter and betray, doing the exact opposite of what he had just told them. Maybe because he knows that even though we're created for a relationship with him that is close and abiding, that we wander, yea, even run away from him sometimes. It happened in the Garden of Eden. It happens today with us. So let us read John 15 together, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Let's pray. Oh God, how good it is to sit and to read your word and to be together. Please, Lord, give us insight this morning for our own unique individual journeys with you and then what that means for our community and our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as we studied the first part of this chapter, Pastor Denny reminded us to stay connected because relationships take time and intention, not just with God, but with every person who is important to us. Last week, this week, we see that Jesus makes a bit of a turn to talk not just about abiding, but remaining in and staying connected to his love. Some scholars have said that these particular verses are at the very heart of Jesus' farewell words to his followers because they sum up why Jesus came. All week long, I have prayed for you and sought the Lord about what it means to remain in his love, to keep ourselves continually in his loving presence. Eugene Peterson translates this as making a home in God's love. On the surface, it seems like kind of an intangible idea, a passive waiting, a sprawling out on God's couch, if you will. But in Jesus' words here, we see action. As he tells the disciples to remain, he tells them also what they can gain by it. So today we're going to talk about three active ways that we can remain in his love and then what we will receive if we do so. Because remaining here is doing. It's not just sitting in one place. So, here we see remaining is obedience, which gives us joy. Remaining is uh, loving one another, which makes us friends of God. And remaining is bearing fruit, where he will help us to do his work. 
See, Jesus wasn't just a teacher who sat in one place like a guru, just telling people what to do and dispensing advice. He was an active, on-the-move Messiah who traveled around so often, but continually remained in God's love while living out his call. His activity flowed out of good, protracted time in prayer. So we, too, are told to go out prayerfully in our life with him. So the first lesson that we see is that remaining in love means that we live in obedience to his commands. In our sermon study, we talked about whether or not this was conditional, that God will only love us if we obey him. But that viewpoint doesn't bear up with the rest of scripture, and we don't really like that thought very much anyway. We know nothing takes us out of the Father's love for us. He loves us in our grace and disgrace. I read this to say that one way we show our love for God, one way that we can experience his continuous presence with us is to do what he commands. Now, obedience is something that all of us struggle with because of our independent, sometimes defiant human nature. Jesus knows this. So he reminds those for whom obedience is difficult that he himself was obedient to the father. If he needed to obey, how much more do we? And here we see the reciprocal relationship between father and son and how that relationship is the pattern for Jesus and for his followers. Obedience is putting God's desires above your own. Daily, do you consider how it is that you are living in accordance with what God wants for you more than what you want for yourself? The association between obedience and love is one that I think we need to think about. One way, of course, we can understand this is to remember what it was like to live under our parents' roof. Some of us still do live under our parents' roof. In that scenario, you live by their rules, which makes sense. Although the older we get, our obedience may become more in name only. And there comes a time in every young person's life when they want to be out on their own and live in freedom and obey no one but themselves. Now, we know in a healthy household, the rules are created out of love for us, which is something we may not see until much later when we ourselves become parents or we're responsible for young people in a way. It's the same with God. Remaining in his love means that we understand at a mature level how his commands are for our benefit. How much our behavior need his boundaries. And when we strike out on our own from what it is that he wants for us, the harmful things that we can choose might make us lose the freedom won for us by Christ. Rejecting God's truth is, in a sense, rejecting his love for us. When we are disobedient, we end up far from his care, losing his sense of protection and wisdom and guidance and love. Obedience here isn't just following a set of rules. It's a relational construct where we do the right thing because we trust in God's love for us. We want to honor him with our actions. We depend on him for what is best and then live that out with his help. Adam Clark, the British Methodist theologian, said this, It is impossible to retain a sense of God's pardoning love without continuing in the obedience of faith. Obedience and love are always intertwined. 
Jesus says that he has given us these words so that our joy might be complete. But this can be a little counterintuitive for us. Most people, including us sometimes, focus on ourselves being happy. What does it mean? What can I do in my life to make me happy? Believing that we're going to get joy somehow just by being good or doing the things that we want. Certainly we don't have joy by being obedient. But Jesus here reminds us that we are the most fulfilled when we are close to the Lord and doing his will. The true joy that comes from being with God is remaining in his love. And the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here is full, brimming over, over the top, running out all over the place. Joy. Secondly, remaining in God's love means that we love others the way that we have been loved. One scholar I read this week said, um, using Jesus' example from the vine, said, This is what life looks like among the branches. This love, as Jesus points out in verse 12 and 13, is sacrificial. And Jesus, again, is our model, talking about his own death on our behalf. Greater love has none than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But at that point, he's also showing us that giving of ourselves is the point of the Christian life. In our Bible study again this week, we talked about how surrender is part of our daily walk with God. That he gave his life for us and that we give ours back to him in surrender. That we find our lives when we lose it for him. One of the things that I was again reminded of from this passage is that our life is never measured, separated in isolation, separated from other people. God always looks at us and says, what is your relationship to me? What is your relationship to the people that I have placed in proximity to you? When we think of a branch, we know that it can't exist without the trunk. But a tree with only one branch, like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, is clearly not going to last very long either. So the question is, how do we give to the branches that are close to us that are struggling? How do we give some of the nutrients that we have out of the abundance of God's nourishment so that we might be a conduit to other people around us who need it? On the news this week, I heard a story, and maybe you heard it too, um, out of Malta about a wealthy couple who are doing an incredible thing. Their names are Christopher and Regina Catrambone, and they were on a a recent yacht cruise in the Mediterranean. And Regina caught sight of a life jacket in the water. And when she asked someone about it, she told that it might belong to a migrant who had died trying to get safely to Europe. Because record numbers of people from the Middle East and Africa are crossing dangerous waters to try to get to a better life. Last year, about 200,000 people attempted the journey, and about 3,500 of them drowned in the process. So learning more and asking more questions, this couple discovered a complete crisis where thousands of people are dying, and no one, no government, no country, no one is intervening to try and help them. So they founded an organization called MOAS, the Migrant Offshore Aid Station. And last year, they used $8 million of their own money. And this private organization then works with governments and works with countries um, to try to bring people to shore safely, no matter who they are. This isn't political. They're just trying to save lives. 
And to the day, this date, they've rescued thousands of people who might have died otherwise. Now, this is an astounding thing on the surface. But then I read about why it was that they did it. And here's what they said. They said, we founded this Moaz in response to Pope Francis's call for ordinary people to reverse the globalization of indifference that has long confronted refugees seeking a better life in Europe. The globalization of indifference. Church, this is where we need to step in. Everyone is important to God. No one is outside his love and mercy. This couple has all the money in the world, and they could spend their days doing nothing except cruising on their 130-foot yacht, not caring about anybody, protected by their resources. Instead, they've chosen to hear the call of God to extend their mercy in a way that Christ would have them, to use their resources and time to save those who are in peril, to sacrificially give so that the branches around them might live. That is loving one another the way they have been loved. Jesus here is reminding us to give all that we have. So often we're overwhelmed with all of the needs in the world. But this couple were confronted with people literally dying in their path. And so we too are called to help those in our path who are dying in some way. There's lots of ways that people are dying that we come across every day. And so Jesus is asking you and me to step in. When God compels us to reach out, this is part of remaining in the love of God. To give of ourselves, to not miss opportunities that are right in front of us when we see an empty life jacket. To reverse indifference that is so pervasive today. Jesus tells us that those who live in this way will be known as the friends of God. Like Moses and Abraham and Rahab. When we abide in his love, we want to join him in his work. In this passage, Jesus levels the playing field by reminding his followers that he has been transparent with them about his plans. In a work situation, sometimes a boss will give a terse order, expecting it to be carried out with no questions asked, no understanding given. And Jesus says, by joining him and offering our lives, we are his friends. We're no longer called servants. He said, I told you everything that the Father has told me about the work that I want you to do. Servant here means living tool. And Jesus is saying, you're not just used for the work that you do, but you're my partner. You're my friend in what I do. There is trust and transparency with a friend. Clearly, Jesus is still our King and our Lord, but by saying we are his friends, it empowers us to know his plans. It empowers us to go out and do his work. Lastly, remaining in the love of Christ means that we bear fruit, which of course is the overall theme of this chapter. Denny showed us last week, only by remaining in him can we be people of love, joy, and peace. The word fruit is used to explain what happens outwardly, When a person's heart is in the right place. Again, this is not a technical thing, but a relational one. When we stay connected to the vine, who is Christ? He produces fruit in us that is eternal. 
And Jesus here is tying bearing fruit into love. Perhaps because it needs to be our desire to stay close to him. And that's where bearing fruit is possible. I think the real addition here that Jesus is making also is that he's saying he chooses us to bear fruit. In the culture that they lived in, the students chose the rabbi for mentoring. The greater the teacher, the more students would seek him. But of course, that is not how Jesus does it. We have a teacher who comes to live among us, who comes directly to us, inviting us to learn with him. And because Jesus chose us, it gives us assurance that he will always be there, that he will always love us, and the ministry we do will last forever. Jesus then says, whatever we ask for in relation to this work, he will give us. He always goes with us to do the work that he's asked us to do. That's a relief to know that we never, ever go out there by ourselves. And whatever difficult situation he has called you to, he is there. And so because of that, I want to remind you to always pray. Always pray before you go out and do anything for him. Because the kingdom is serious business. There are lives at stake. And we don't want to go out spiritually on our own. He always shows up and will help us. And a few hours after speaking these words, Jesus would die on the cross. And it is through his death and resurrection that we are able to truly make ourselves at home in his love. In accepting his love poured out, we are then able to live close to him, allowing his life to be what bears fruit in us. You see, Jesus showed his love for God by acting in obedience to him. And that action is the source through which we then go and bear fruit today. And the first followers that he said these words to, although many remained obscured, went out and changed history and were here because of them. The four words of Jesus in many ways, I think, sum up the Christian life. Remain in my love. When we do so, we will want to please him in obedience. And he will give us great joy because of that. By experiencing deeply his sacrificial love, we will want to love others in the same way. Choosing to see how um, the world very much needs people who are engaged in meeting real needs. In loving others, we then become a friend of God. And then the things we do for him will have eternal value because he chose us. And our surrender, in our surrender, there's great harvest for the kingdom. When I told my brother that I was using his story about Disneyland, he said something important. He said, we need to re be reminded to stay in the love of Jesus, not because we don't love him, but because sometimes we get so used to it, we lose sight of it. He said, I just got distracted and stepped into a phone booth, not thinking that I would lose sight of where it was I was supposed to be. As we take these words with us this week, let us remember how to remain in the Father's love. Because it's right where we're supposed to be. Let's pray.